This is a Colored Pencil Podcast, session number 212. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how are you today? I am great. How are you? I am doing never better. This is a show about colored pencil, where we discuss everything and anything surrounding colored pencil, this medium that we love so much. So, Lisa, what are we talking about today? We're talking about some questions that we often get. So it's not, I guess it's kind of a Q&A. Sort of. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the first one, Janelle writes, do you need to cover every piece of the paper with pencil? Do you think it's better to let the toned or colored paper work for you in your composition? Supposing that you're using colored paper, not just white paper, um, and there's a different variety of colors within white that you may use as well. To answer the question, I mean, first off, I think before you start your project, you're always going to think about the subject matter and what would fit the composition the best way possible. Because when I'm looking at, um, say, a portrait that I'm going to do, if there's some paper color that's going to aid me with that portrait and I'm not wanting to do a, an entire saturation of the paper. That is, I'm not going to build up a whole bunch of multiple layers. There is a method that I use once in a while that is a limited toned drawing where I am using a toned tan or a toned gray typically as a background. And I am letting the paper do a lot of the work for me in the composition. I mean, I think it depends. And that, I know, is an answer that we often don't like to hear. But I think that you need to be strategic about the way that you approach it. If you're doing something that is entirely white, you know, your subject matter is uh, a snow scene, and you're choosing black paper, that may not be the best choice. (laughs) Just saying. Yeah, you know, you've got to keep in mind when you choose papers, if you want the most true color that you can get from your pencils, you're going to go with white. You're going to go with bright white. Let's say you want a bright yellow. You put that on white paper, it'll be that true bright yellow, the color of the pencil. You try to put that on blue or even tan paper, you're not going to get the same results. So if you're going to choose a toned paper, then it should be because you're going to let that work for you. It works with the the design that you've chosen, the colors that you've chosen. And I love toned paper because it can save you a lot of time. I've done that on a few black or pieces where it was a lot of black. But when I do that, I have to know my brights are not going to be anywhere near as bright as they would on white paper. So I choose something like a tiger coming out of the shadows. Everything is very dark. It's supposed to be dark. That works. Now, if I have one area that I need to be super bright, and I, I wouldn't do this everywhere just because it's not really practical. If that if I had a lot of areas that needed to be bright, I'd go with the white paper. But if I had a couple of areas that I needed to be a bit brighter, I can use my touch-up texture titanium white mixture from brush and pencil and paint that white. And then I can get my bright yellows or whatever on top and it'll be bright. But it's a layering process that that may not be practical if you've got a lot of the area that needs to be very, very light, like the snow scene. You know, obviously, 
just use white paper would make more sense. So yeah, you want to choose your paper based on what's going to fit that project better. If I've got a lot of blue in the sky, I may go with the blue, one of my light blue. I've got a Canson Tans. I love uh, their, it's like a real pale blue. I think it's called light blue. I've got multiple colors from them just depending on which project I'm working on. More often than not, I'm going to go with white because I'm going to get the most true, the most accurate color. But there are projects that I choose that it makes more sense to go ahead and use that darker paper and let the dark show through. There was a lion I did not, well, I guess it was a while ago now. A few years ago, I used tan paper and I let the background stay tan and I let a lot of the the, lion, the color in the lion in the fur, I let that tan of the paper showing through in multiple areas. It made it so much easier so I don't have to just go ahead and, and fill all of that in. So in that case, that paper made more sense. Yeah, there was an interview that we did not all that long ago with color pencil artist Holly Bedrosian. Um, she uses uh, a very dark type of paper, and she's mostly doing portraits. If you're going to use a darker paper, let me just put it this way. If you're just starting out with colored pencil, and if you're new to the medium, then I would recommend pure white to start out with, because you are going to have to make some color shifts and some uh, decisions on a lot of things. And I've known artists that are working on black and they'll do like a grizz eye method using white everywhere first. And then they'll put color on top of that with colored pencil. And, you know, depending on the composition, that may be just a ton of work. Otherwise, if you just choose something that is slightly tinted, and that's the reason why I like to go with that gray or tan, then you're not fighting the color of the background the entire time. But like we like we alluded to, I mean, you've got to figure out what will work for the composition. If mostly what you're doing is something that has green grass in it and that dominates the entire composition, maybe green's a good choice. If it's uh, a sky, then maybe blue's a good choice. But if, you know, it's something that's very dark, maybe black. Uh, something that's white, maybe white. You know, you can really create a problem for yourself trying to figure out, well, what is this color going to do? You know, you're always going to test on a separate sheet, obviously. But you can really carve out just a ton of unnecessary work for yourself if you're not careful. The next question that we get quite often is, how do you cut down large sheets of paper? If you're getting the big sheets of Fabriano Artistico, I want to say they're, what, 22 by 28, right around there. I forget because I have no memory. But when you get these big, large sheets of paper, you generally want to cut them down to smaller sheets. I usually will cut them down so that I've got four 11 by 14s. I'm not even going to try to figure out the math on that one. But what I typically do, I either, I do one of two things, depending on how lazy I'm being that day. If I'm not being lazy, I get out my big mat cutter and that way I can cut it really straight. I can measure it's It's a little bit more, well, it's a lot more accurate. The other thing that you can do if you don't have that mat cutter and what I do when I'm being lazy, I get a big box. Like if I save my boxes from Amazon and a ruler or something straight, sometimes I use a canvas, but something that has a straight hard edge and just an, a box cutter. And I just cut that along the edge there. Uh, you want to make sure whatever you're using for the hard edge, you're pushing that down on the paper. Uh, try to use it on a fair, a really flat surface. Like I wouldn't recommend doing this over carpet. I will usually put that box on like the tile floor or something that's going to keep it flat. So I'm going to get more accurate accurate results. I don't care too much. And maybe this is just me. Other people will definitely probably care more than I do. 
I know I'm going to map my work so no one's going to see that edge. I don't care that much if the edges are perfect, perfect, but it's probably a good practice to make them more perfect than what I'm doing with that box cutter. So, you know, you may want to measure things, take something with a, a ruler, get a line with a light pencil so that you're sure you're cutting that along that edge. But those are the two methods that I use. I typically avoid scissors. I cannot cut something straight with scissors to save my life. It just, it's horrible. <laughs> I'm really bad at yeah. it. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about watercolor paper too, the 300-pound watercolor paper, um, you're going to have a difficult time cutting that with scissors anyway. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, and I'm not, most of the time I'm not cutting down watercolor paper. So uh, if I'm cutting something down, it's usually Stonehenge or something like that. Um, But still, you can get some thicker papers, like some Strathmore. I've had some Strathmore paper in large sheets that were like three and four ply. Um, So that gets really large. Uh, The thing to be careful about also is you can create a very, very sharp edge on that paper for yourself if you're not careful. Just be aware of that. You can get you a bad paper cut. Um, (laughs) Just, you know, slice yourself open if you're not watching what you're doing there with that after you've cut it because you've created just this very sharp, clean edge. It's a, a little bit different than when a machine is cutting it. I don't have anything really to add to that. I, I just try to um, you know, lay it flat. And like you said, I, I want to put something underneath it, but I need a hard surface. Use a very large knife. If depends on the weight of the paper. Um, if it's a very heavy paper, then I want to use a larger knife than a smaller one. I just want to be careful with that. that and itch. make sure the bo- if you're using a box cutter, make sure it's a fairly new blade because once those start to get dull, oh, it will just rip up that edge sometimes. Yeah, it'll rip it up. And uh, the other thing is you'll have a hard time keeping that straight as well. What I usually do is I I measure it and I draw with a pencil line uh, just so I know where I'm going to be cutting. And then I do use, use a straight edge usually whenever I'm making the cut itself. But I think any, you know, it's a good idea to get to where you have a mat cutter, you know how to use a mat cutter in general. I mean, as colored pencil artists, sometimes we'll do things that are an odd size. So let's say I did something that was maybe 18 inches long and 10 inches tall. That's not standard at all. Good luck. Fine. You're, you're going to have to have a custom mat framed or bought for it. So either you want to stick with standard sizes that are easy to buy pre-made or pre-cut mats or have it custom made, which can get very expensive or get yourself a mat cutter, a decent mat cutter. I think the one I bought, I probably spent 150, 180. So it was an expensive one, but it's yeah. something that you want to consider saving up for. It's by Logan and it's yeah. amazing. It's very easy to use. And I'm now able to like, I, I don't do the super fancy edges or anything like that. I keep it very simple, but I'm able to do these odd sizes and what I do so that it'll fit into a frame. I can get a standard frame. So let's say I have this piece that's 18 by 10 inches, very odd size. You're not to have a custom frame done for that. And uh, usually we don't want to put a lot of money into the frame because the buyer may want something totally different. So I usually go with simple black on most of the frames that I'm going to hang in a gallery or, or a show or something like that. So what I will do is buy a frame that's a standard size, maybe a, I don't know, 24 by whatever a standard by 24, but by a standard size that will, and then frame, or when I cut the mat, it will be long and thin. So it almost looks like those wide bars that you get on the widescreen 
movies before our TVs were longer. I don't know. Those of you who are old enough, you'll remember what I'm talking about. But when you get movies and you had that black bar on the top and the bottom, that's basically what I'm doing on the mat. So my top and the bottom may be extra thick and the mat on the edges is thinner, So, but it still fits inside a standard frame. I just have a large bit of matting showing on the top and the bottom. And it's one of the ways that you can frame something if you wanted to do something that's an odd size. I do it all the time, but without having to have expensive custom framing done. So getting that mat cutter, that was one of my better purchases, I would say. I know I don't talk about it very often, but it has saved me in the long run so much money not having to have custom mats frame done anymore. And like I said, I just put them in standard size frames. I just cut the mat. So the outside edge is standard. It's the inside that that fits the artwork that is not. Did that make I, any sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I I think I have that same mat cutter, the Logan mat cutter. The problem is I never use it because I don't, I'm not using it every day, so I don't have it set up. It's huge. And yeah, I have so, mine under a workbench. So it's yeah, too. I mean, it's good. It's, it, that is the best way to do it. That's the best way to cut anything, really. Um, but when I get it out, I'm just like, oh, here we go. I mean, it feels like so much work. I leave but, mine all together and it just yeah. slides under my workbench. So it's well, out of sight, but it's yeah. easy to pull out and use really quick if I want to want, do want to use it. Okay. You may have convinced me then I, I should probably do that. But the other problem is if you're deciding to go ahead and grab yourself a mat cutter, that that's great. The thing is, take some time and get some cheap throwaway mat pieces maybe one of the craft store uh will give you you know if you go, go ask them if they have some scrap pieces they usually do and see if they they'll give you some and then play with those and work on practicing on on doing it the worst thing in the world is to go to a show and see a poorly cut mat i can't stand that yeah. you look at the corners and it looks like a, a little kid did it. it's got a crisscross in the corner that kind of thing and i'm telling you if i were matting my own work that's what it would look like because I've not practiced enough. So <laughs> no, good tip. And it's it does definitely take practice and yeah. math. There's math involved, and that's why it, I am slow yeah, to cut that's true. maths. Oh my gosh, the there, amount of measuring, and double checking, and, and, and yeah, and and there's practice because you have to yeah. you you have to know with that bevel, you know how that degree of the angle that you're creating with the knife with that little ed, razor edge. What, how far in it's going. And if you're double matting and all of that, it, I mean, it does involve some practice and, and knowing I can go this far, you know, one centimeter or whatever, uh, towards the edge. And then I'm gotta, I've got to stop right there. And yeah. if you're doing it all the time, you'll get good at it. Yeah. Anyone can learn it, but you are yeah. so right. It just takes practice. Yeah. I'm not good at it. I, I just kind of half get my way oh, through I'm it. I'm definitely but. <laughs> not good at it. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. So, um, so our last question here, and this is kind of a biggie, and you may disagree with us today. We may disagree with each other today, but I mean, there's so many different ways of thinking about this. Maybe I'll just tell you what the question is. So can you use non-light fast colors underneath your light fast colors? In other words, when you're working on your project, is it okay to use colored pencils that are non-light fast and then go on top of those with light fast colors? So this has been something that has plagued the color pencil community for a long time. And then in recent years, and re by recent, I mean, you know, past 10 or so years, there have been a surge of products that have come out that have been light fast. And we're so grateful for that. Other mediums have gone through the same kind of things. But 
the problem is this. A lot of people have a lot of pencils that are non-light fast. They're called fugitive colors. And they they want to use them. Uh, some of them are extremely non-light fast. Some of them are just sort of non-light fast. And so there's a scale, obviously, that we usually refer to the Blue Wool Scale or the ASTM D6901 standard for light fast materials for products. And what happens is there, you know, there's this belief that you can just use non-light fast materials and then you can do all these other things to help protect your work and you can still use non-light fast materials. This is my belief on it, that there's a continuum, um, you know, from one side to the other. On on the one side, you have non-light fast materials, non-archival uh, materials that you're uh, using to create your artwork. You're putting your pencils on materials that aren't archival and you're using non-light fast materials and you're not covering it with a UV resistant glass and you leave it in direct sunlight. That would be the worst case scenario, right? So we go in the other extreme, the other direction, and you only use only light fast colored pencils. You only use 100% as far as we can tell, um, you know, acid free archival materials and you protect your work 100% by, you know, keeping the uh, temperature stable, uh, making sure no humidity is ever getting to your artwork. So you've covered it on the back. You've placed glass on the front. You're also using a UV resistant glass. I think there's somewhere there's some things that we could do in between there as well. It's kind of unrealistic to say that we're always going to use a light fast rating of, you know, one that will never be able, you know, will never use anything that is not a one. I, I'm only going to use light fast colored pencils and uh, that will last a hundred years. Um, that's sort of unrealistic to say that you'll only do that all the time. So some I people, know. I do. Well, sort of, I will go down to a two. So some people will say, well, you can take non-light fast pencils. You can work on your work for the base layers, the initial layers, and then you can go on top of those with light fast materials like your luminance pencils, your Derwent light fast, your polychromos pencils. That does work to a certain extent as long as you have some other protections in place and as long as you've covered them, that layer is so far underneath. And so it's hard for me to recommend that and to say, yeah, go ahead, use fugitive colors, and then seal those on top with these other pencils because you're, I don't know how many layers you're putting down. I don't know how completely saturated your work is going to be. Um, the, that's the problem consider, I have with recommending that. Exactly. When you're doing, let's say I'm do, drawing a rose and I put a base layer of a bright, non-light fast pink because pinks we all know getting those like hot pinks you just can't get that in a light fast color so let's say i put that down first but it's okay because i'm going to put a light fast yellow on top of it 
yeah, but did I get the yellow everywhere? Like you were saying, did you saturate it everywhere? Because usually when we layer colored pencils, you're going to fade from that pink into yellow parts, going to have more yellow parts, not how much of that are you guaranteeing you covered with something else? You can't really know for sure. And if you're just doing it for yourself, if you're doing it for a gift for a family member, I wouldn't worry so much about it. If you're selling it, that takes it to a whole other level for me anyway. I have a great story. Actually, somebody posted in our art group, in the Lockery artist group recently. She had bought 30 years ago, her and her husband saved for, it was, I think she said three months worth of wages. I could be getting the facts wrong. I don't remember. But I mean, it was a lot of money. They saved and saved and saved for this painting. They bought it 30 years later. They bought it because they loved the bright pinks. It was a landscape. It had these really beautiful pinks and blues. Those are gone, completely gone. And they- yeah, she was like, you know, this is why we need to be using light fast materials. They saved for so long for this painting and it wasn't using, they didn't, the artist hadn't used, maybe the artist didn't know about light fast. Maybe 30 years ago, it wasn't as big of a deal. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's not what she paid for. And she's so disappointed now. You think she's going to give that artist good reviews or tell people, oh, yeah, buy more from this artist. I mean, yeah, 30 years is a decent amount of time, but not that long when it comes to art. When no, somebody no, spends in it that much money, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing she must have spent thousands of dollars on a painting, it better last. And I'm not willing to take that risk for maybe being able to use a color that, you know, I want it to look the same in 50 years that it did today. That's very, very important to me. And if I use that hot pink, it may look amazing now. And it's okay because I put the yellow on top and it covered it. Did it cover everything? How do you know it covered everything? How much yellow did there? There's too many factors in there that I personally am not willing to be the artist that somebody ended up being disappointed because of. Just a tip. Don't use hot pink. <laughs> to tell you right now. Okay. So yeah. If if you're selling your work, then I, and and here's here's one thing about it. If you are selling your work, then I think that we have a responsibility as artists to put as many protections in place and to educate our client and to let them know what museum conditions um, really are. You know, define what that means that they should protect the work as well. They they play a big role in this as well. I can put UV protected. Um, glass on my work. I can make sure it's sealed on the back and that no moisture is getting in there. I can do a lot of things. I can use the best materials possible. But if they stick it in a hot, sticky bathroom um, and they put it right next to the shower or in the shower, um, you know, things like that, or they stick it in the garage and there's no temperature control in their garage, uh, you know, all of these things, there's a lot of things that matter. There's, there's going to be some problems with it. If you're somebody who's using something that is like very low on the, on the blue wall or the ASTM, and you know you're doing that, and you're thinking, well, I'll just go over it with a light coat of a luminance pencil towards the end, and everything will be just fine. I don't know how you can live with yourself doing that. I, you know, if you're not thinking about those things, and you're using pencils that you know are going to fade, I, I have a real problem with that. I can't do that. My conscience won't allow me to do that. But if I'm doing stuff for myself, it's not going to bother me too much. Yeah, or good. even if I'm if there are colors I really want to use, I just give it to a family member as a gift. They're not at anything. They can enjoy it until it fades. And I'll try to, you know, put it behind light fast glass. That will make a big difference. There's always other factors in there. But I sold and to this day feel terrible. I had no idea. I used 
cheap linseed oil on oil paintings when I first started painting. So I used this, the cheap linseed oil and Within six months, I sold these paintings. I sold them. They weren't expensive. They were like $50 or under. They were not expensive paintings. But I sold these little quick studies at an art show. And then about six months later, within a year, that linseed oil had started to yellow on the canvases. It had these big drip marks that I don't even know where that came from. It looked horrible. And it was, I feel terrible that somebody paid money for something that did not last very long. And I didn't know. It was complete ignorance on my part. I will never make that mistake again because I never want to feel that again. All right. So maybe you have something you would like to add to this list and maybe you want to weigh in on this topic and you're certainly welcome to do that. You can comment in the show notes, sharpenedartist.com slash podcast. This is a weekly show. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com.